You know, I love those pictures. Bones into armies, seas into highways, reminders of how God has been effectively working for us since the beginning, the very beginning. Before anybody thought about us, he was preparing the way for us. We've been looking at the book of 1 John. I invite you to turn there. We're going to continue our study in the book of 1 John. And as you're turning, you're headed to chapter 5 this morning. So we're getting closer to the end of the 1 John. Our message title this morning is Belief Plus Love Plus Obedience Equals Victory. And that victory leads to witness. So belief plus love plus obedience equals victory, and that leads to witness. In a previous message in 1 John, back in June, I spoke to you from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And in that message, we saw that John was addressing how a Christian could know that they're born again, or how we can know that we know God. So this morning, we move a little further. But we looked at those first tests that John writes about. First one being righteousness or the moral test. He talked about love being the social test. And then Chad followed the next week speaking to us about truth, which is the doctrinal, doctrinal test, which John returns to and connects as Jesus being the Christ. In this section that we're looking at this morning, as John continues his thoughts about love, he combines those three tests righteousness, love, and truth, to help us see that we can't have one without the other. They're tied together. John begins here with a statement about belief. Belief. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his children as well. Spiritual birth or being born again are tied together in verse 1, and then we'll see later in verse 2. We're made alive by God when we believe in Christ, pursue righteousness, and love His children. We believe and do spiritual things because we have first been made alive. And because we do things in that order in our living, the tests of life act as indicators that an individual is truly God's child. So belief plus love. A couple of questions for you to consider this morning. Why is loving people one of the clearest indicators of a person's love for God? And how are love for God and obedience to his commands related? As we think about that, I want to go back to my senior year in high school. I was invited to be a part of a citywide crusade in our little town. There were about 15 to 20 churches involved, and there were several denominations represented. We call this week-long emphasis the Jesus Movement. As I remember, it was very life-changing for a lot of people that I knew and went to school with. During the week, I had the opportunity to be a counselor and each evening, and I led several students to Christ during that time that I went to school with. Now, however, this included several guys in that counseling time that I didn't particularly get along with. But God used that experience in my life to move me down the road of service for him. The evangelist for the week was a guy named Sammy Tippett. Though he was from Louisiana, he had a street ministry in Chicago. And he had several uh, 
what you might call PR pieces that he would give out. And one of those was a roll of stickers that we would use each evening. And one of the, one of the things on those stickers said, God is love, Jesus shows it. And as we've worked through 1 John, I've been reminded of that over and over and over again. And that statement has apparently been imprinted here somewhere. Maybe it's one of those folds that just opened. God is love. Jesus shows it. And if we love God, then we must also love his children. As challenging as that might be at times. Continuing on in verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John's asking us another question here. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. When someone is born, none of us, when we're born, come into the world in complete isolation. No one is totally unique because we carry characteristics and attributes that those who've gone before us have had. Usually a person is born into a family with family relations. They'll carry some characteristics from the mother and or the father, and we see that stronger in some children than others. So spiritually, the child of God will exhibit characteristics we see in this letter that we're reading about this morning. We'll develop, as believers, we'll develop love for the patient as well as love, excuse me, love for the parent, (laughs) as well as love for the children. John wrote in chapter 4, previously in verse 7 and 8, that a characteristic of the child of God is love. Now he shows that a child of God is to be loved by those who are also members of God's family. If we're uncertain about loving other Christians, maybe the first question we have to answer is, do we love God? That's right. Whether I like it or not, John is reasoning that our love for each other is proof of our love for God. Again, looking back at chapter 4, verse 20, in John's gospel, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, the Bible says, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So there it is. John tells us that we can't love God unless we love others. So following that logic, because we love the parent, being God, we in turn love the children, and that's us. We're called to love each other, aren't we? Every Christian is a child of God. Therefore, when we love God, we love our fellow Christians as well. To be born into the family of God comes with obligations to the Father as well as to the children in the family. Love for others becomes a direct result as well as an obligation for becoming one of God's children. There again, we're reminding, we're reminded that God is love. Jesus shows it. So belief plus love plus obedience. John moves from love 
to obedience and then says his commands are not burdensome. So we have two ideas here that we can think about for a moment. There's a huge difference between Jesus' commands and the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now the Pharisees had created literally thousands of minute requirements for God's people as to how the commands of the law were to be followed. Their yoke indeed was burdensome. But they were not God's commands. They were more in the vein of rules to justify the Pharisees' positions. You know, like to prove they hadn't needed a job. They came up with things continually that the people of God were supposed to follow. Jesus, on the other hand, he kind of cut through all the man-made rules to expose the central heart attitudes that God required for his people and of his people. But before we get too harsh with them, we might look at our own self because we still do that today, don't we? Sometimes we do. We tend to major on the minutiae. In our lifetimes, how many people have been pushed away by the church because they didn't have the right clothes to wear or they didn't know the answers to the questions that were asked in Sunday school or maybe because they raised their hands in worship? More than once, we've made those mistakes of majoring on the minutiae. Now, the second thing we see here in this passage is that new life the new life Christians have from God result in loving Him. So when we find this new life, the result is that we love Him. Instead of love leaving a bad taste in our mouths and something to run from, His love makes obedience very desirable, which should be something we're not only willing to do, but we strive to do. Just like when you fall in love, you're willing to do almost anything for the person that you love. You'll go to great lengths to make them happy, won't you? How much more so do we seek to obey God, who loved us before we were even aware of it? But we do have to admit there are times when we find the commands of God to be tough. Sometimes it's not comfortable for us. We've even heard, unbeliever, uh, we've even heard believers complain that sometimes God is unfair. Have you ever heard that? Imagine that, because he expects us to live up to certain conditions, usually when it's the opposite of what we want to do. I know because I've been in that position. I haven't wanted to do something that I, it was real plain God wanted me to do. The commands of God become burdensome when we want to do something else, don't they? When our will dominates over the love of God for God and we see what was intended for good, suddenly we see it as repressive. The answer, the Bible even gives it to us, love God with all of your heart, love God with all of your soul, and love God with all of your mind. So belief plus love plus obedience equals victory. These are kind of the bookends of this section. And it's the belief that Jesus is the Christ and the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. John made it clear that with love comes obedience and with obedience comes love. And you won't have either without belief, without faith, 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In the last half of verse 4, we read, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And in verse 5, John asks this question, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So all this equals victory in our lives. So three things about victory this morning. Victory of the world, victory over the world has its origin in God. No victory could be possible were it not for the new life that comes from God and is put within the believer. Our ability to resist the world is because of the truth we find in he who is within us that is greater than he who is in the world, that being Satan. So victory over the world has its origin in God. Number two, victory for the Christian is about faith. Remember, God, remember John defines faith as Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Now that flew in the face of, the false teaching, of some of the false teachings of the day, particularly the Gnostics. We've spoken of them before. One of the main reasons John wrote this letter was to address the false teachings of his day that made a distinction between Jesus the man and the divine Christ. The Gnostics taught that Jesus became God at, the cruci- at, the, at his baptism, and then it left him at the crucifixion. They believed that Jesus wasn't really God's son because matter was evil and spirit was good. So because God, who was spirit, was good, he could not have created a material world because it's evil. And since spirit and matter could not intermingle, Christ and God could have not been united in the person of Jesus. So that was the teaching that was being put out in the day. But we see those same challenges today. It's just as important, it would seem, for the world to tear down some of the things we have been believing in for a long time. Or maybe water down the church and its effectiveness in the world. Even calling some of our beliefs hate speech today. Because they don't match up with what the culture seems to be trying to teach us all. And third, third principle today, victory is about faithfulness. Victory is about faithfulness. This victory comes to the Christian who remains faithful to the truth concerning Jesus as the Christ and continue to serve him. We only only live the best life possible when we walk in the belief that Jesus, or the belief of Jesus, and in obedience to God. They work hand in hand. The certainty of victory in Jesus assures us that while depending on God's power, We can love God, love his children, and obey his commands. We can do all of that. It's our faith that enables us to live victoriously in Christ by loving God and obeying his commands. So back to our formula. Belief plus love plus obedience equals victory. And that leads to witness, which is the theme of that next section starting in verse 6. And going through verse 12. Six, this is the one who came by blood, or came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So we'll pause right there. 
Old Testament law had established this principle of testimony of two or three witnesses. If you look back at Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 17, or Deuteronomy 19, the Bible indicates from God's law that there needed to be one, more than one person to testify against or for someone. There needed to be this principle of two or three witnesses. And John apparently falls back on that thinking. And he does that to kind of help the people come along with the idea that here's three solid witnesses as to who Jesus is. The witnesses are the water. That's a reference to his baptism. We see that in Matthew chapter 3. The blood. That's a reference to the crucifixion. And the spirit. That's a reference to God's clear declaration that Jesus was his son at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration experience, Matthew 17, verse 5, where Peter, James, and John were on the mount, and Jesus was changed. And during that, those moments, they heard the voice of God telling them, this is my son. So Jesus shows up with three strong, three, throng, three strong testifiers, water, blood, and spirit. Verse 9, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. So here John takes a moment to show why the testimony should believe. First, it's the witness of the Father in three different and powerful ways. This should be enough on its own, according to John, when the witness is God himself. That's pretty powerful when God himself shows up to testify. A second thing is willful unbelief is sin. If a, if a person doesn't believe God, then that person has to decide, as John says, that God is a liar and he can't be trusted. So the witness of the Father and then unbelief is sin. Verse 11, and this is the testimony. John has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Those are the witnesses. This is the testimony. You know, through the years, we've lived through a lot of emphases and seasons where local churches have given great efforts and a lot of resources to give testimony. I remember as a high school student when we started a bus ministry in our church. You remember bus ministry, churches purchased, used, often worn out buses from the school system in their town, and they would paint them, and they would fix them up, and then crews of volunteers would come every Saturday, every Saturday, to visit the homes of potential riders or to verify they were going to indeed ride the next day. We developed youth ministries, youth choirs, children's ministries, mission trips, vacation Bible schools, radio preaching and Bible classes, 
church growth seminars, discipleship training, food pantries and closed closets, televising worship services, and even today seeking to find ways to use the Internet. Now, you know, we can look back and criticize how we thought some of those efforts worked well and some others didn't, particularly for some of us that didn't live through some of those experiences, but this all gives evidence to the fact that this was all in an effort to reach lost and hurting people because we were called to do that. Why do we keep reaching out to a lost world? Because we're called to reach out to a lost world. Because the testimony we find in Jesus is this. Eternal life is found only in the Son. Eternal life is available to everyone. And eternal life is available now because of faith in Jesus. That's why we're called to that. What is eternal life? It's not just about heaven. Eternal life is the knowledge of God. You don't have to wait for it because <clears throat> you receive it at the moment of salvation. I have eternal life right now. If you've accepted Christ, you have eternal life right now. It's not in the by and by. It's right now. That's pretty significant. And you don't need to work for it because it's already yours. And you don't need to worry about it because you've been given eternal life by God himself, and it is guaranteed, the Bible says. It is guaranteed. If you have the Son, you have life eternal. But it's only the beginning because we must grow in our knowledge and we must grow in our understanding just like a baby, an infant, must move to childhood and on. We must grow as well. God wants us to grow in our knowledge of him. But if you reject, if you reject him, the Bible says you are condemned. Without him, you have no hope for the future. Without him, you're on the road that leads to hell and separation from God eternally. That's like forever and ever. You may have heard of that word. Separation from God. Some would say it's ridiculous to claim to possess certain spiritual knowledge to certain, to have understanding of spiritual things. They would say it's ridiculous. You can't do that. But John, in his writings, would differ with this way of thinking. And he has written this letter to say to all of us that if we believe in Jesus, we can know we have eternal salvation. God's Word tells us we can know that we know that we know. To presume anything else and to question the assurances we have is nothing less than doubting the very words of God. So what are, how are you doing with that today? Are you unsure? How are you doing with that today? Are you doubting? Are you unwilling to let go and step into the light of faith? Have you been holding back maybe for a long time? Because the Bible tells us that this could be the day of salvation for you. And just because we get to be older doesn't mean we have it all nailed down. Through the years, I've visited with more than one person who had doubts even after they looked back and said they had become a Christian on this date or at this time or this town or this place or this church, and yet they continued to have doubts. Are you one of those this morning?
Are you unsure this morning? The Bible says you can be sure. You can know that you know that you know. There's no reason for doubt. Sometimes we let our insecurities come up to the top of the glass and make us feel that I'm not sure about this, God. I'm just not sure. When you have those moments, I would suggest to you the best way is to go back. Think back to when it happened, how it happened, how you prayed, what you were willing to acknowledge, the people that might have been around you, what were you involved in, what are the experiences that you had, how has your life changed on this journey that you're on. And what I found is that just reminds you and nails it down again and again that what you did in your life, the decision you made, the call upon Jesus to be your Savior was real and solid, and you don't have to doubt that. But this morning, if you have doubts, if you are unsure, there's no better time than right now to nail that down. To come to a common agreement between you and God that you want his son Jesus to permeate your life and to change you. That's why we have these invitations every week. It's not about getting you to walk down to the front so everybody can watch you. Shame on us if that's what we're doing. This thing called invitation is an opportunity for you to open your heart and life to Jesus in a fresh new way or to nail down something that's occurred to you as I've been talking and as you've read his word that the Holy Spirit has permeated your heart with. And granted, you can do that from where you're sitting or standing. But our intention with an invitation is to give an opportunity for you to perhaps pray with someone or to work through a process or maybe to say to the whole world that I stand up for Jesus. So in a moment, we're going to sing this song we sang earlier, I Will Follow. And I pray as you sing those words, that truly is the desire of your heart, that you want to follow him no matter where he goes, no matter where he asks you to go, what he asks you to do, and how he wants to affect your life. That this will be a song of commitment for you. I'm praying you'll let God speak to you in these moments. Would you pray with me? Father, as we said and as we've sung about, in these times we have so many questions. We're unsure. We don't know about the way the world is, seems to be headed or looking or turning. But I pray, Father, that this morning we would take these passages and let them be a thing that secures in a fresh new way of our commitment to you that we will want our lives to matter every day and that we don't have to worry or doubt or wonder we can have assurance today that when we say yes to you that our lives are changed forever and we start to experience eternal life we don't have to wait We're not looking at the someday. We're looking at right now.
how you want to use us. And I pray for those that might be troubled or dealing with issues or unsure that right now you give us all of that assurance that you are still in control and that we're children of yours and that we are committed to love others that are also children of yours. And that this family matters because we seek to serve you. So whatever efforts we make going forward will be blessed by you as we seek to affect a lost and hurting world. So be with us now. Take this song as our commitment to you and use us to serve you better this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.